We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Yes, while you come in and there's inevitably going to be a, like a, a high percentage of tourists, but there's also a ton of people who have been there like 30, 40 times before, which you just mm. don't get anywhere else. It changes things. And it's one of the only restaurants where most people sit down, like they don't get a menu. They have, yeah. they have a waiter that they know that they come and they're like, hey, I want to sit with him. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Peter Luger is Brooklyn history and one of the most iconic New York City restaurants around. Between hand-selected steaks, a signature bacon and burger service, and a tight-knit family that has run the place since 1950, it's a rich topic to talk about on a show. And talk we did with Daniel Tertel, who works along with his family at the Williamsburg Institution. Daniel is involved in the daily selection of steaks that are served to hungry guests each day. And we talk about the restaurant's legacy, as well as its bright future in, of all places, Las Vegas. We also talk about what it took to come back from a pretty tough New York Times review. Daniel is a really interesting guy, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dan Tertel, welcome to This Is Taste. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, like, your name isn't Luger. My name is not Luger. But you're basically, your name could be Luger. It, it could be. I've thought about it. You thought about just switching it? I'm sure Tell's pretty cool, but... It'd be less confusing. But but you're here. You're technically a vice president um, at Peter Luger, but you're part of the family. It's a family-run operation. So you, you said off mic, it's a gentle family. Tell me a little bit about what is a family gathering of all the shareholders and all the voting shares of Peter Luger? Um, so we we, you know, it's again, it's a very gentle, loving version of succession. Um, <laughs> but no, we have we have like a great time. And, you know, technically right now working there is myself, um, my great aunt, Amy, my aunt, Jody, and then my cousin, David. Yeah. And we have, you know, board meetings every day at lunch. And once a week, basically, we have Friday night dinners uptown with like the whole family. So okay. it's a uh, that's kind of the extent of it. No, it's it, it's it sounds like you're in it. You're having lunch with your family yeah. before going to work. Let's back up a bit, though. I want to zoom out. In the intro, I'll say a little bit about why I love your restaurant and why it's so important. But honestly, in your words, Peter Luger, like what what is this institution? What does it mean to New York? Yeah. So you know, Peter Luger is interesting. It, it, it kind of define the modern American steakhouse. And part of that is that like we've proselytized through all of our waiters who've left us and started their own steakhouses. So that's like Wolfgang's, Ben and Jack's, Benjamin's, Empire's. And so we have like a kind of tremendous reach with what our menu has done. Um, but all that started with us and, you know, we've popularized dry aged beef and, um, you know, kind of like these very bare bones German beer hall establishments, uh, which is kind of like, now people think of it as this is an American steakhouse, but it wasn't always that way. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it's, it's cool to be at like where it all started. I mean, truly, who was Peter Luger? Who was the guy? It's a guy, right? It's not like a amalgam. It's not like a, a, a cartoon, right? It's a real guy. Yeah, an old 19th century myth. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, like the jolly green giant of beef. No, he's, <laughs> exactly. a real, he's a real guy. Um, he is a real guy. I, I 
don't actually know all that much about him. I don't know that anybody does, but he was um, either a German immigrant himself or the son of German immigrants, and he was living in the very German neighborhood of Williamsburg. Um, and in 1887, he started what was then Carl Luger's Cafe and Billiards uh, with his with his nephew, Carl. And Peter owned it, and his nephew, Carl, uh, manned the grill. Apparently, there were billiard tables in there, but I, I can't understand how they would have fit. Um, but right. yeah, it's smaller already, people back then, maybe. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but it was just that, you know, if you have a sense of the restaurant, it's just that one dining room. Um, when you go in and make a right, that was the original. Oh, place. no way. So we've grown from one to, to four dining rooms. Yeah. Um, it's very like organic expansion, but so it was just that one and it was a billiards hall. Um, yeah, and that was 1887 Williamsburg, hot yeah. place to be. Well, let's fast forward to 1950. The Foreman family bought the Peter Luger, and that's where your family enters the mix. Yeah, and so let's let's find out what was it like in 1950 when it was taken over, and what you know what is it, what did it become? Yeah, so um, Saul Foreman, who who bought it in 1950, was my great grandfather, and Saul was a really interesting guy. He was the the son of penniless Russian immigrants um, living on the Lower East Side. His mother kind of famously was was along in years when she had him, and she thought that she had a tumor, and then out pops Saul. Wow! And uh, but very like very smart, very industrious guy. He dropped out of high school at seventeen to light street lamps, um, but always like very entrepreneurial. Not educated, but like very very smart, and had a really good sense of business. So you know, fast forward a little bit. Um, he takes a loan from his older sister's husband to start this metalworking factory. And where are you going to set up a metalworking factory? In the manufacturing district of Williamsburg. So it's at Broadway and Driggs, um, which is catty-cornered across the street from uh, from Peter Luger. It was an interesting business. Uh, he did it with some of his siblings and their their spouses. Um, but the old the old saying was that like when business was good, he'd be eating two, three steaks a day. When the trade throws trade shows were in town, he'd be having three steaks a day. Um, so then, you know, in 1950, Peter Luger had been dead for a few years. The business was declining. And um, rather than, you know, they put it up for auction rather than find a new business lunch spot, Saul went across the street, bought it at auction. He was the only one there. Um, and then that kind of mm -hmm. became the business. So, um, yeah, so that was 1950. How am I related to Saul? Saul's my great-grandfather. He had three daughters. All three of his daughters had three children. All nine of them live in New York, except for my mother, who was the black sheep and moved oh. to the Jersey Shore. Oh, she went to, you grew up in Asbury. I grew up in Asbury. Oh, man. So many questions about Saul. I mean, like Saul, I mean, I'm getting like Nucky Thompson energy to reference Boardwalk Empire, one of my favorite shows. It feels like he like was smart and that he was running a business and knew there was a canteen. Let's blend the two together. Let's do business and maybe make money twice off of our customers. Yeah. Um, I think that's knowing Saul, that's probably right. correct. Like you're like buying the industrial stuff across the street and you're having a meal out across. Like, yeah. I, I I think that was a lot of it. And, um, but he also, he, you know, I think a lot of things that now seem kind of obvious, but he was the first one to be like, let's be super ingredient focused, yeah. especially for a steakhouse at the time. Right. Um, and his wife also really interesting character, my great grandmother, Marsha, um, it was this like very, I always picture as a very like elegant mm -hmm. old Russian lady with like a huge Russian braid down her back. Um, and Saul's first thing at the restaurant, he's like, you are going to learn how to pick meat. And he hired this old USDA inspector who would take Marsha around to the meat markets, which are like super male dominated. Yeah. These are the ones in the meatpacking district, 14, 16th street. Yeah. So like meatpacking district, I mean, at the time that's where they all were. Yeah. And there's, you know, blood on the floor, just 
like all men, all guys in boots. And my great grandmother would show up in like a Cadillac with her heels and fur coat. And it would be like, well, we're going to pick me. And those guys all loved her. Um, but she had like such an eye for it and she was like willing to, you know, just work so hard. So when I was starting to pick me and go to these places, the guys who were like really, really old timers when I was starting, they remembered her they remembered when they her. were like 17 and they were like, oh, we love Marsha. Um, and that was a really cool, cool. That's thing. amazing. Yeah. So Dan, let's like hear a little bit about your job. So you're saying you learned to pick meat. Yes. This is like your job. Yeah, this is. This you seem like a cool guy. Like you could be like <laughs> literally like you could be like a professional surfer slash you could be an agency guy. Like you look like a normal guy, but you don't look like a meat picker. Yeah, well, you've never seen me try to surf, but yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. So the, the, the meat picking is it's honestly it's like a really cool, fun part of the job. You just get to meet really neat people. Um, and for us, it's not just like, oh, well, meat's coming to the restaurant. What do we want? What don't we want? Like, I've spent a lot of time in the Midwest going to these like slaughterhouses, yeah. going to the feedlots, going to the ranches. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. And we take, you know, we're not we're not winning any awards for like innovation in in beef, right? So for us, it's all quality focus. And it's all like, where's the ingredients coming from? How do we source the highest quality beef? And that's that's like our whole trick. I mean, the innovation in meat is fake meat and that stuff is trash. So straight up, like you should be doing it like the way they used to do it. Like exactly. that's what meat should be. Yeah, that's, Simpl that's you're, you're not going to find any argument. Either. Yeah, no, but I think it's it's interesting that when you say you're not going to be innovating, because like, I mean, I had uh, Pat Lafride in here recently and we it's the same way. Like you got to put in the work, you got to know your farmers in the Midwest and you got to like just know how to work with your customers. And so you pick meat, you, you buy the meat direct. Yeah. So, well, so, so you, you work through a distributor here, but, yeah. um, but we know the places that they're coming from. We've been to those, you know, those meat packing plants. We've been to all that stuff. And then, um, as far as the actual distributors here go, there's, there's a few still in meat packing, but mostly they've moved like the Bronx or Long Island. Um, they're, they're kind of scattered all over the place. There's not really much in meat packing, but there are like Waisel and Jobag yep, are still yep, there. Yep. Um, but you know, you also, as as us, like we pay for the privilege of being able to send meat back, which certainly makes it more expensive because people have got to make two rounds when they come to us. Um, but that's something that we feel is like our identity and that's something that we need to be able to. Retain. Yeah. And your menu is, is, is pretty simple. It's pretty simplified. It isn't like a Keens, for example. I mean, it's like steak for one, steak for two, steak for three, steak for 20. Yeah. You know? exactly. well, I mean, there's other cuts, I'm sure, but, yeah. but what is, when you say it's steak for one, steak for two, like, what is the cut? Cause you're like deciding yeah. Really for your diners, right? Yeah. So you, so you get a short loin, which is basically like midway, you know, through the ribs down um, to the hip. And you've got, you've got two like super prized pieces of meat there. You've got the sirloin, which is actually the same muscle as the rib. Um, it just like once it passes that, that seventh rib, it becomes uh sirloin. Um, and then beneath it, you've got the tenderloin, which up by the ribs is, is basically, it's, it's actually nothing. Yeah. Um, but it starts to, it starts to grow. And by the time you get to the way back of the short loin, you've got, you've got a, like a full filet at, at the biggest it's going to be. So that's your porterhouse, like the, the back two or three cuts of, uh, short one, that's your steak for two. Um, beyond that, you know, all these different configurations of T-bone where you have some filet, you know, the, the sirloin basically stays the same size throughout. Um, those get configured differently for like steak for three, steak for four. And then the steak for one is just like a pure New York strip. Which is like, I think when you get that, you get the real, you get the blood flavor, you get that like real like iron flavor. I love that about the strip. It's such a great cut. I totally agree. Um, 
Yeah, and people have their preference. So like yeah. now, honestly, the reason that we started putting the rib on the menu was because it was so cheap at the time. And it was like a great way to balance the, the cost. The food of, media took it over. Yeah, and now rib is yeah. more expensive than short How many times like have you seen a guy do a ribeye on television? It's like it's it, like the cut. Yeah, and like, you know, 50 years ago, that was it was like trash meat. Yeah. Um. So that's pretty interesting. But that so that muscle loses fat as you go back, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know. My opinion would be that like the rib, you're you're not getting the full meat flavor. It's like it's very fatty. It's so fatty. Yeah. And when you go back towards like towards the porterhouse, you're getting less and less fat, but you're getting more of that meat flavor. Um, it's a big muscle, but it's a muscle that's not used so much. And then beneath that, you've got the fillet with the tenderloin, um, which is also a fairly large muscle, but it's basically not used at all. It's not weight bearing, it's it's nothing in a steer. Um, so even though it has the least amount of fat of any of these things, it's also the tenderest. Yeah. Which gives it flavor and you can cut it with a butter knife. So yeah. there's like a certain steak fan yeah. who loves it. I think the ribeye does well because there's a lot of people who don't eat a lot of steak. And then when they go out, they want that unctuous fatty yeah. cut. But like for a guy like you who knows what good steak is, you'd rather have the flavor. Yeah. Also like our method of cooking, you you know, you know, have butter on the plate also. So just, well, let's yeah. get into that because it was exactly what I wanted to ask you because it seems you've got the cuts, you've, you're picking, but then there is some you know, special sauce. There is some magic that happens when you cook at Peter Luger. What is your style? Because I know you have a unique style. I always think that our magic is like in the selection. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of people who know how to pick meat like we do. Um, it's, it's you know, there's a, there's a bunch of criteria that go into it, but any piece that comes into our aging room, it's been really, really kind of like poured over and we're like, this is, this is it, we're sure. Um, and that times, you know, 1600, whatever. Um, so that comes in after the dry aging process, it gets butchered same day. Uh, we're butchering twice a day in Brooklyn. Um, then it goes up to the kitchen. It it just goes on, you know, the broiler, salt on top, yeah. one side. It's like four minutes, four or five minutes. Yep. You, you, it's you, extremely hot broiler. Extremely hot, yeah, like that's a thousand degrees. Yeah. Um, and you feel it in there, like especially like summer in there. It, yeah. It's tough. Um, basically four or five minutes each side. <laughs> then it comes off. Um, and this is, you know, now it doesn't seem so innovative, but for a long time, this was like, this was the new thing. And now it, so... It comes off the broiler. Um, it goes into the plate that it's going to be served on um, with just a little bit of clarified butter, gets sliced in the plate, and then finished back in the broiler. Yeah. That's um, the key to the finished part. Yeah. And that's pretty special. And then it goes out you know, on that platter. The platter is searing hot. Um, we've got big signs in the kitchen, which is, don't leave the kitchen if the steak isn't sizzling. Right, right, And right. Uh, it goes out to the table. You're, you're supposed to be able to hear it. And... Um, yeah. And so you're like fuck resting. Like there's no such thing. No, no, no. Which, it's, which it's I think go, it's, go, go, go. <laughs> it's cool. Like, you know, cause it's going to rest cause there's going to be big, you know, cameras out or fo- iPhones out. And yes, especially these days it rests a little bit. But, uh, it rests a little bit more with the big, the grand moment. Exactly. But what Peter Luger really means to me, it's not just picking the steaks. And I love that we started with culinary cause really I, I, I respect the most out of restaurants really, but no, but no, it's like about going to Peter Luger with the boys or with your family or for a holiday. And I just want to ask you when it, when you think about the dynamic in the dining room, you got a lot of tourists there too, of course, mm-hmm. like what makes a time at Peter Luger really special? Yeah. I, I think Peter Luger is an incredibly unique restaurant in that it gets so many repeat customers. You know, we've got, um, we've got our own house accounts and we've got like such a army of regulars that yes, while you come in and there's inevitably going to be a, like a, a high percentage of tourists, but there's also a ton of people who have been there like 30, 40 times before, yeah. which you just mm. don't get anywhere else. And whether that's, you know, 
they have a standing reservation with the boys every every fr- you know first Friday of the month, or they come in with their family once a year, or they're there like for every major event that their family has ever had. Um, it changes things, and it's one of the only restaurants where most people sit down like they don't get a menu. They have yeah. they have a waiter that they know that they come and they're like, hey, I want to sit with him, and that changes things. And you know, it's also that's 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 true also throughout the waiters. Like most restaurants in New York have huge turnover in the waiters. Our guys have been there for like thirty years, yeah. fifty years. Like we've we've waiters that is that, that because have, they just do really well. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's capitalism at its fullest. Um, yeah, but we also, you know, we do we 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 do a lot of things to keep them taken yeah. care of, and you know, so every single employee of ours, for instance, gets full healthcare, non-contributory for them and their family. They don't pay a dime towards it, mm. and that's something that we do so that it's not just like oh, you're going to come in here and it's going to be like a quick turn career while you're trying to do something else. It's like, this is a place you could build a career. You could build a family. Um, you could really live off this. I got to imagine you don't have a lot of openings for spots. I feel like you probably had an apprenticeship program where you build yourself up to be a, yeah. a dining room waiter. Yeah. And and actually, it's it, that's true of the waiters. It's also true of the kitchen. So like a lot of our, um, you know, the, the guys who are the most senior now, um, the heads of the broilers, everything like that, a lot of them started as as dishwashers. A lot of them started, um, you know, in different positions in the kitchen and they've worked their way up. Because one of the nice things about us is like, you don't need a fancy chef who's going to be like, this is how we're doing this. This is how we're doing this. We're calling the shots, mm-hmm. you know, who went to CIA and is, and is coming like hot out of school. Like it's much more important actually that these guys have a sense of how the kitchen works, know the timing of everything. The timing is like so key for us. Um, so they've also been there forever. So these guys come in and like it, like they know everybody. Like it really is, it feels like you're eating at like the Bavarian beer, beer hall behind your house because like you, you are. Like you all really these guys really have, yeah, all these guys have been there forever. So you mentioned the uh, house accounts and you mentioned like, do you really have guys who roll up every Friday? Do you, do you, ha- is that legit? Who are they? Like, not by name, but like, who are these people? Because I love this. They they tend to be like these big tables of usually men. Um, it's like eight of them at a time. And they are the guys who have a bacon appetizer, lamb chop appetizer, steak for, you know, four times two, ribeye for two, like three times. Like they just eat a tremendous amount of food. Um, sometimes these guys are there for lunch every Friday. And then like, you know, it's three martinis and back to work. I mean, that's, I understand that. Yeah. Cause like, it's like lunch and you're away from your family and you can do it. But like the Friday dinner is kind of epic. Like, yeah. are they doing biz? Are these guys, are these businessmen? You know, we kind of stay out of I, I Wise, wise man, Dan, yeah. to kind of let them do the thing. No, it's really fascinating when you, when you talk about regulars, because New York, we have a culture of of being a regular, but with like resi and with like, just like places get hot. It's kind of impossible right now. So how do you work the book then for these guys? You just have like literally a standing res? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, the regulars, they, they there's a lot of like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. But they come in, they see the hosts, like they end up getting tables. Yeah. Uh, we definitely like, you know, hold a few aside for for people. Um, but that's based on like we know that, you know, a certain amount of people are going to come in. And it's also more that like, you know, they text three days in advance like, Hey, like they all have all of the waiters numbers. They all have yeah. our host numbers. They're like, Hey, I'm coming in with eight people. Can you make it work? And we'll squeeze tables in. We'll do what we can do. You can, you can definitely have a few standing tables for those guys. Yeah, exactly. So do you actually, do you take credit cards? I always wonder about this. Oh. No, no, we, uh, so we take cash, obviously. Um, we do take checks, which like no one ever pays with a check, but we do take checks. 
Um, we take U.S. debit cards now, which seems like yeah. you know, the hot new thing for us, um, and gift certificates and Peter Luger account. The account. So how do you get an account? What's the, how, what goes into that? Sounds cool. Um, the accounts are cool. So this was, you know, and again, a lot of the things that I'm talking about as innovations, like the business started in 1887. So, um, and and then Saul bought it in 1950. So, you know, now I think we're really used to like, you go shopping and they're like, well, do you want an account card with us? And, you know, a lot of people have these. No one really had that back then. And Saul, you know, in his kind of, very simple but intuitive way was like, what's going to make somebody come back to Peter Luger time and time again? And it's like, well, they're going to open their wallet. They're going to see Peter Luger card there in gold. So it's something that like catches their eye. And they're going to be like, oh, I haven't been there in a while. I should go. Yeah. Um, and it was like, it was, it was a great call. It's really simple, but it was a great call. And now we're up to like almost a hundred thousand of these cards. Um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And they also provide like some of my favorite moments in in working at Peter Luger. Um, at least once a month, someone comes in, usually like two or three people come in with a card. They say, hey, um, my father just passed away and his card number is 1402. I'm one of three siblings and we want to split this up. We want us to keep going. So we want it to be 1402 A, B, and C. And we do it. And then, you know, they're like thrilled. And That's cool. It's, it's a way to like keep these things going. Which is uh, it's 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 pretty magical. It's it's a it's a unique thing to be able to do. That's really special, and I, I think it, it just shows the hospitality that you you present. Uh, what is your day to day like? What what do you personally? What do you when you're saying you're having lunch with with your with your coworkers every day? What are you doing in the restaurant? <laughs> um, so you know, the the past couple of years, I've really focused on expansion. Yeah. Um, modernizing back end stuff. It's like. Like it's it's an old place. Um, there are yeah, things. the one in Brooklyn for sure. Yeah, um, but also like you know the back end was very old. Um, so when I when I started out, our all of our accounting was done on these like gigantic printed custom ledgers, which is like an Excel sheet with you know like fifty columns if you print it out. So that's what like A through like yeah you know whatever A A X mm-hmm. and um and bound in leather, and that's like how we did all of our stuff. So there were adding machines. Um, Wait, this is like in 1995? This is in like 2013. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty wild. And no computer, not a single computer in the office. Um, that was something that like that could change. And now we're, you know, very modern in the back end. And a lot of the trick has been like, how do we maintain um, the feeling and the sentiment and the aesthetic of an 1887 establishment on the ground? But then make some things easier for ourselves in the back end and make sure yeah. that like things are working. We're collecting the data that we need to collect. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not that simple. But, no. Um, so that, that's a lot of what I do. Um, and then I've been working a lot with the expansion stuff. So let's talk about that. I was out to dinner last night with a friend and he was like, I told him I was talking to you and he's like, man, the Great Neck location is, is better. It's like the best one. Hot take. Hot take, right. Not sure if you agree. But um, you're also in Las Vegas. Yeah, you and recently opened there, and like that's a whole scene. Yeah, so we were kind of on the sixty-year plan. It was like eighteen eighty-seven, <laughs> um, and then Great Neck opened in nineteen sixty, and then Peter Luger Tokyo opened in October twenty twenty-one. Oh right, and then Vegas opened last week. Right, last week. Yeah. Wait, so, have you been to the Sphere? I've been to the Sphere. What do you think? It's okay. Yeah, that's it. A- it's 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 just like a it's a thing. It's like it's a sphere. It's a screen. <laughs> All right, back to your back to you. What what's the crowd like at Peter Luger Vegas? I mean, what a restaurant town. I was there this past May. Yeah. I mean, holy cow, people love to go to restaurants there. 
it's pretty incredible the demand there yeah especially for like steakhouses is pretty wild um it was a very like natural place to go because of that um but it's really cool caesar's which is where we're we oh are. cool so we, we took over the old rayo space which is this like interesting yeah it was you kinda, took over the rayo space we took over the Rayo's why did rayo's fail i i don't know yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not privy to that no, information no, no. but um huh you see what their sauce business just sold for. I don't know that they failed. They're, they're well said, fun. Dan. I mean, you're right. No, they didn't need restaurants. It's like chump change, it's like like yeah. cushion change. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but no, so we we took over the Rayo space, um, and that was kind of a cool. You know, like in some ways, it's irrelevant what we took over. Um, but in another way, it was like one New York institution coming in for another sure. one, um, which was a really cool thing. And uh, Rayo's. I don't know if you were ever at the Rayos in, no. in Las Vegas, but what they did was they basically took their Harlem dining room and they replicated it like exactly two times, mm. um, which was cool. But we decided like, we don't quite want to do that approach. We want to like respect the Brooklyn tradition. We want to respect the elements that come out of Brooklyn, but we want to do something that doesn't feel like we're we're, we're trying to make it um, 1887 when it's not. So we have this very modern take on what a exposed wood, exposed brick, German beer hall vibe should be. And it's, it's honestly, it's a magical restaurant. It's, you know, tin ceiling bars, zinc top bar. It's, it's, it's cool. Um, a couple questions. Yeah. The steak selection, are you doing that for Vegas as well? Yeah. So that was probably the hardest part of opening right. Vegas. Challenging. Um, I spent like an inordinate amount of time, um, doing the past two years visiting very strange towns in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, you know, meeting beef suppliers, meeting beef suppliers out there. But the way that we, you know, ultimately wanted to do it was that none of the beef that's going there wouldn't be coming here. So we've made it, the distribution of it is very, very equal. Um, so we're basically any brook, any meat that's going to Peter Luger, Las Vegas is also coming to Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and we're selecting. Smart. So you had to get like a national distribution. It was like a big part of what you're doing. Yeah. And so it was our, going to both. Exactly. And you, what's nice about doing this now versus like 20 years ago is a lot of these places, even if they're regional, they have national partners. So a lot of our you know partners that are here um, that we work with in New York, they have a partner west of the Mississippi. And, you know, so it was it, it wasn't like starting from square one. What's average check like a buck fifty, buck seventy five? I mean, about a buck fifty. Wow! I mean, that's Vegas for you. That is Vegas for you. Um, it's kind of shocking. Uh, I mean, it is, but you, I, I've gone recently post pandemic, and as you said, you said it really well. Is the demand is off the charts for restaurants? It used to be just like gambling and drinking and maybe going to a steakhouse, but no, also there's none of that. It's great. It, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, there's none of that exactly. It's only eating. Only there's no none of the other stuff. But like people go because our culture has become more interested in food and like and sophisticated and wants all sorts of different things. Yeah, and if you if you had asked me ten years ago, like, do do I think Vegas is the best town for us? I I had a preconceived notion about it. I would be like, eh, you know, it's more of more of the things that you were like more gambling, more drinking, all of that stuff. You go now, like the the quality of restaurants there is is insane. Yeah. It's, it's, it's honestly, I think it's, it's comparable to, you know, just the, the, um, the density of them. It's, yeah. it's almost like you're, you're downtown here. So in 2019, New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells published a pretty tough review. The headline was, was, was pretty, pretty tough. I'll say Peter Lurger used to sizzle. Now it sputters. Now I wanted to bring this up. You're at your game. You've been open about your business. What did that mean when that hit 
your doorstep, that review, did you make changes or was just Pete kind of not, not right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'll say the truth is that we very much exist for the customer and not the critic. And part of that is just, you know, who we are as people. But part of that is also, you know, we've been open since 1887. We don't have a seasonal menu. It's, um, we have to be customer focused and not critic focused. So it would have been a much more distressing day had like all of our regulars given us one-star reviews and they were calling up and canceling reservations and um, cutting up their Peter Luger cards. Obviously that didn't happen. Um, actually, what the immediate aftermath was pretty magical. Like everyone who had seemingly eaten in the past 10 years at Luger's came out yeah. um, to support and it was it was pretty cool. I recall the internet that day. Yeah. I remember Eddie Wong was pretty, pretty vocal. Yeah. So like, you know, I've all my friends been like, Hey Matt, you okay? I'm like, actually we're like, we're totally slammed. Solidarity Um, reservations were flowing in. Yeah, exactly. Love that. Um, you know, on the other hand, critics play a really important role. They hold New York restaurants to a standard. They hold you to your own standard. Um, so it would be, you know, irresponsible to ignore that. Right now, a part of it is like, you know, do I think a restaurant critic like Pete Wells is coming in and thinking, I'm going to make a splash by being the 1,000th glowing review of Peter Luger? I don't know. Probably not. On the other hand, does that necessarily invalidate all of his criticisms? Also, no. Um, and, you know, like I said, like, y- you have to then take that and you take it seriously. Um, this is someone that, you know, we admire, we respect, we respect his criticisms. And you 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 have to look at yourself in the mirror. And we did that. And the good news is like, we mostly liked what we saw, yeah. right? Our beef program, which is like critical, our, our, our heart and soul, um, that we were, this is great. This is, we're achieving what we want to achieve. It's very intentional. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that this is going to be to a critic's evolving taste, right? We're doing the same thing we've been doing for a very long time, but it was intentional. It's exactly what we want the product to be. So no changes there. Does that mean that was true for all the menu items? No. Um, and honestly, it was, this sounds weird, but in some ways it was a little bit liberating, right? Yeah. You've got like, since definitely since 1950, probably since 1887, there's these like recipes that you're like, well, we've been kind of unanimously praised for these. Like, why are we going to touch anything? So you have this almost like dogmatic adherence. Of course. To tradition. It's your brand. I mean, it's, it's this heritage. Yeah. It, it would seem just silly. Like, oh, you're going to just change this thing now just arbitrarily. Why right. would you do that? It would be a huge risk. Right. But then, you know, like I said, someone you admire, someone you respect comes in and basically says, you guys suck. And it, it you know, that hurts, obviously. Yeah. There's there's a, a bit of that. But then it's also like, okay, well, now let's stop thinking, how do we make this exactly the way we were making it last week? And let's make this the way that we're going to put the best thing on the plate. So what's Pete going to see now? What's going to have, what improved if um, he's going into your dining room, you know, this holiday season, he's, he's rolling in. Yeah, so uh, there's... Again, it's not like core menu items. Those things we, you know, felt confident about, we still feel confident about. No changes necessary there. But you look at little things like take salads, right? Like it is very easy in a steakhouse like we are to get complacent with your salads and be like, well, people aren't coming into Peter Luger for the salads. Yeah. So we're going to keep doing this the way we're doing it. But, you know, over time, little things happen and they build up. You take that and you look at like what tweaks you can make and maybe you're shaving your your cheese different. Yeah. Maybe you're using a different grater than you should be. It's using. technique stuff. Maybe you're, maybe you're exactly, maybe you're sourcing things like you, you're being a little sloppy with that. And so we looked at that. We, we did it like 
we took it very seriously. Um, also right on the heels of that was um, COVID. So yeah. we had like a lot of time to tweet. Right, right. Um, and we really, we, we went through, we made that sure that every single menu item was as good as it could be staying true to ourselves. Okay. So and he's, he's going to see something, some new stuff, right? He's, he's gonna... still probably going to hate us, but it's fine. Like, yo, I mean, uh, who, who knows? I think he probably will re-review it at some point. I had the soul by the way. That's a perfect example. Nice. That was something that like, I just wanted to try Cause I was like, I want to talk about you. Like, yeah. Uh, you have soul in there. It's pretty good. We have soul in there. Um, and that was something that I think before that we're like, no one's ordering the soul. But then you look at it and you're like, well, you've got all this COVID time. You're like, well, let's make sure. Let's that make this sure is... we have a, a exactly. nice piece of vision. So it's uh, like, I don't want to, do I want to say thank you, Pete? No, I don't no. want to say thank you, Pete Wells. Yeah. But but it's it's a better restaurant today for it and credit where credit is due. Well so, said. Yeah. We have not talked about the burger and it's probably your most famous menu item. And I feel it's one of the New York's best burgers by far. So let me ask you, why... Is it so beloved? Like, what what's the element that you feel sets it apart? Yeah. So there's two primary types of fat in a steer, right? You've got intramuscular fat, which is like the marbling. Um, that's what like gives beef its really high quality. And then you've got intramuscular fat that's like hanging on organs. It's between. It's protective. A lot of burgers, what they'll do is they'll use low-grade meat, which has low intramuscular fat, and they'll add fat for flavor which looks beautiful going into a broiler. Like it looks like, wow, mm -hmm. like this is gorgeous. It's pink. It's got plenty of fat. But that fat's not designed to stick to muscle. So you put that under heat and it all just like pours out yeah. or it gets onto the bun and then it just sogs the bottom of the bun. Yeah. We use only USDA prime chuck rolls. Um, the only thing that we add in, never fat, the only thing that we add in is uh, trimmings from our dry age program. Mm -hmm. So you've got really high quality beef from the chuck from prime chuck and then you've got really high quality beef which has been dry aged and that just like makes i mean it's yeah it's an insane burger and then is it 80 20 chuck uh no it's 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 cleaner it's no so we're actually we're actually more like two chuck to one trim oh i see like depending on what trim we have that day but we're never we're never below three to one wow so that's that much trim in there nice yeah it's 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 definitely not like if you're like i want to make this burger as profitable as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the best burger you could. I, I, I think it's awesome. It's nice. Let's talk celebrities. Let's talk celebrities. So when um, you're thinking about your holiday cards, mm -hmm. who's like a big Luger guy or or gal? Um, so I'll I'll tell you. There's a few things, right? Like one is that I think our image throughout, you know, at least for the past like 75 years, has been kind of. Um, it, it's it's avoided being a very like kind of snobby restaurant, so we're kind of like an everyman's hundred percent agree. Yeah, and for the quality that you're getting, that's pretty rare. And part of that is that our staff has been there forever, and they're not like they're a lot of them are not restaurant people. So we've had things where like you know the Miami Heat is called, and it's their manager, and they're like, "Hey, we're uh, we're coming in tonight." For you know, twenty of us, Eric we're going to be Spolstra, the manager of the Heat. Is calling it's probably him? not the manager, yeah, but, but like it was someone who does, yeah. I was like, Eric Spolstra's got good taste in restaurants. This is good. Yeah, I'm I'm exposing. I know, I know, you know. much about sports. But, I know, <laughs> um, but uh, we've we've had you know like like actually the Heat have you know been here and called and the person who answers the phone is like, what who are, who are you? Do you have a reservation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. Um, it's so great. It's great. Yeah, it's it's awesome. <laughs> and it's uh. It's it, like, that's very much who we are. My, my favorite recent celebrity moment. So we had this really fun thing during um, like pandemic era restauranting, which was that, you know, by rules, like the, the, the restaurant had to be certain percentage empty. 
Um, so we, we got oh, in yeah. touch with Madame Tussauds um, and we we're like, hey, it's really sad to have empty seats in there. Can you send us some wax sculptures? And credit to Madame Tussauds, they were like so on board with it. They're like, yes, we're sending you all these people. So we had Don Draper at the bar. Stop we had it. Audrey Hepburn at a table. We had Jimmy Fallon at a table. And what was the coolest thing of all time? Jimmy Fallon came in to have dinner with Jimmy Fallon's wax sculpture. And that so was, it was just it, in, like during the, it was such a dark time. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was nice such, to do anything that made you laugh. Yeah. yeah and it was, that, that was really like one of the highlights of my uh, working there. I, I love that idea. Who's calling you celebrity wise? No one calls me celebrity wise. No, you don't have anyone in your phone. You gotta, no, you gotta... I'll put my cell out here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, uh, there's a lot of a lot of sports um, and a lot of like TV personalities yeah, yeah, yeah. come through. On this is taste. We ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? I am ready. Your favorite New York City restaurant right now that you do not own? Commerson. Interesting. I love that place. It has an old rustic vibe as well. Not rustic, but like old New York. It kind of feels like it, it's got like Lugerish vibes and it's it's so underloved. Yeah. Like you can always walk in and you're like, yeah. I almost feel weird about saying it because I don't want people to go. No, it's, it's, it's definitely um, has uh, a real, like if you're in the, if you're in the neighborhood, you, you go there, but you, you live in, in West Village. Uh, village. I'm, I'm like Greenwich Village. Village, Village. Um, so what, what, is there a burger that you'll, you'll eat that's not your own? Honestly, no. I, I, Fair. Uh, I'll, I'll go to Corner Bistro late and get one of those. I, I think that's a great burger. It's a, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. I like that. Okay. The best dessert gingerbread cake at Commerson. Yeah. That Interesting. Kicks ass. I have not had that. I love, I love ginger cakes. It's good shit. The best bread. Ooh, uh, griddle bread at Glassery. Oh, tell me I don't about know that. if griddle bread counts. As... No, it, it's definitely um, a nice choice. Okay. Well, Glassery and Greenpoint, yeah. um, kind of like on the Long Island city border. Uh, I just, it, there's, it's, just, there's nothing like it. It's, I, I, I can't explain it. Your favorite cookbook of all time. Uh, I'm a big fan of Alison Roman's Dining In. Yeah. It's it's a great spot. Yeah. And it speaks yeah. to like my kind of level of No, she's, of capabilities. she's, yeah. she's fantastic. Has she been to Luger? Um, I I don't know. She's a Keynes. I mean, Allison is is a Keynes person, so well, we could steal her. There you go. I think Allison, you're listening. You Allison. Hit the bat phone here. Your favorite recent cookbook discovery. Uh someone recently gave me the Via Corota cookbook. Uh, and I finally decided to try to do the uh the Branzino, salt baked Branzino. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's a tremendous amount of salt. It's absurd, but it's it's also it's like kind of impossible to screw up. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's great. It's so moist. It's good. Your favorite vegetable? Radishes raw. Yeah, always so good. Just Butter. salt. Yeah. Your favorite sandwich? Turkey leg sandwich at Henry Public, or um, Sammy and Susu's all of their pita. So good. Just insane. You're a, you're a restaurant guy. Obviously, you own one. I feel like a restaurant. You make guy. the rounds. I make the rounds. Because you're like thinking, these are all these neighborhoods. You're like North Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, you're West Village. I walk, I eat. That's, 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 that's the best. Let me ask you, Dan, is there like another restaurant you want to do? I mean, it's a very busy job. You're traveling all the time. You're, you've got, but what about you? Yeah. Um, interesting question. I, so I've been, especially recently, um, super into my, my fiance is Brazilian. Um, there was a, an amazing Brazilian restaurant called Casa, which was actually very close to Commerce Inn. They closed, I want to say, December of last year. And I've always thought that like Bahian Brazilian food is yeah. the most underloved and underserved food in New York. And 
there's one of my favorite books is uh it's called Gabriella Cloven Cinnamon, which in in Portuguese is Cravoli Canela. Um and I always thought like a, a Cravoli Canela restaurant that yeah. was just buy-in food um would be sick. And I would love to do it. But I it's it's time consuming. It, it's not so. you, you don't have the time. You're picking no, steaks. Not right now. You're picking steaks. You I mean, but you didn't say the Brazilians are the steakhouse. I'm more of a fan of like the no. you know the 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 like African influenced stews stuff like that. Bahia. I could I could do away with churrasco. A hundred percent, and like you're like, I love it. You're not like it's not that's some basic choice. You want to do Bahian cuisine? That's fucking amazing. Yeah, Dan Tertel, thank you so much for joining. This is taste. Thank you. That was really fun. This is taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 